In today's episode, we've got the amazing Timothy O'Brien. Tim is based in Brisbane in Australia and is involved with a great company called Purpose Made. This is a fascinating episode because we delve into things like measurement, which Gary and I have always talked about, maybe the lack of when it comes to mental health. But we delve into things around corporations and businesses and how purpose can really drive not only the company and its performance, but also the individual, which can extend further than your own office space. So very fascinating listen so we hope you enjoy it cheers welcome to the show tim thanks for joining gary and i on these lads are mental hope you're doing well yeah absolute pleasure i'm um, so excited to be here and joining you both in this important conversation fascinating going through the whole research part and learning about all the stuff you do but for anyone that hasn't heard about you before tim do you want to tell us a little bit about you your background and what it is you do yeah so my background is actually working in and and for corporates, so in, particularly in the kind of UK and in the US, a lot of work on building new products and services and doing human-centered design. So built new products that essentially made companies more money, which there's nothing wrong with that. And you should be pretty proud of some of the stuff that we worked on, including MasterCard PayPass back in the day, bringing that to market. But where that kind of land is when I came back to Australia, I found myself working in a, a bank called, an insurance company called Suncorp. We stepped into this area where which we called strategic innovation at the time, but it was all about systems change and how do you become very aware of what's happening in the world and aware of what could be disruptive for that organisation, but broadly the society and the community were operating in and so many things we intersected with and came across, which are material challenges now for society. This is a good 10 years ago. And we helped the board evolve the business model there. And that kind of opened my eyes up, both in terms of my own development, because there's a lot of work that we did on ourselves in that environment, which was a real privilege. But secondly, where I could spend my time to have the biggest impact. And I think we'll talk about probably purpose later today, but it became very obvious that these big social, cultural and environmental challenges that I could see and I was supporting through the work we were doing, I wanted to actively help accelerate the solutions around that work. So I found it hatched at the time and we rebranded that late last year to Purpose Made. So I'll talk about as Purpose Made, but for the last seven and a half years, through our consulting firm, we're essentially building and helping support organisations to solve those social, cultural, environmental problems. And we call it creating real change. So it's, there is some compliance stuff out there at the moment and trying to do stuff that's good within corporates or foundations and not-for-profits. But we want to really take that to real solutions that create big systemic impacts. And mental health is one of the biggest challenges we've got, right? Mm. Do you work across the private sector only or are you also working with governments with the projects that you do? Both. So we will work with big corporates, medium-sized corporates. We've, we do new ventures as well, a little less of that now, but we do new ventures. And we also work with foundations, so those that are supporting that through donations, investments, and governments. So we'll work across anyone that has a remit that there's an issue affecting them or they've got a desire to deploy capital and projects and work into that space to create change. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I, like, I have a little bit of knowledge about this. I worked for a not-for-profit as well and in charities and a few different organizations. But is this kind of like the new guard of what maybe what we would used to say, the corporate social responsibility, or is it a little bit more savvy than that? Yeah, I think there's three domains that are really important to talk about here. And it's cross, there's corporates, and we talk about CSR, then there's foundations and not-for-profits and that's all about how you can increase the impact in that space and then there's investors and we work across all of those different fields so the first one is csr so csr was corporate social responsibility and essentially to some degree that was like doing the usual business and doing a little bit of good on the side a generally gen genuinely that would be organizations who do care about supporting the community gifting volunteering etc but really it wasn't at the heart of the business it wasn't core to the products or services they were offering and so you've seen with corporate social responsibility or csr an evolution to esg so that's environmental social governance so looking at more material risks that you're direct that directly affects your business and bringing that into the core of what you're doing which is good but that tends to sort of compliance so people trying to deal with their kind of environmental footprint or new nature disclosures or modern slavery and they're all these things that businesses are now having to account for in their business and in their everyday operations the evolution, we do that work, but the evolution 
that I believe is most important is called impact. So impact and purpose. So bringing that right into the core of your model. So every transaction or every service that you've got is solving or contributing to a positive social, cultural, environmental impact. So that's just not all we need to account for environmental footprint and we need to make that carbon neutral. How can your product directly support regeneration of the environment or better biodiversity or solutions around better environmental solutions? Same with mental health or social issues or cultural issues. Then you've got the area with the not-for-profits, and that not-for-profit space is obviously it's you know, evolved over many different years. But within that space, what you're finding is there's particular issues that not-for-profits are driving. So one is obviously mental health. It might be women's violence against women, sexual assault, homelessness, whatever social issue that you're talking about, there's obviously environmental ones. But what you're finding is those not-for-profits are doing their best to create change. But because they're one-on-one projects, the issues are actually getting worse. So mental health is getting worse, domestic violence is getting worse, homelessness is plateauing and probably increasing now given the cost of living and housing crisis. And these issues and everyone that's been working on this is starting to think how can we solve these in new and different ways? So where we're work that we're trying to shift towards is less sort of one-on-one projects and grants to saying what are the combination of activities that need to go together in order to create real change and accelerate the solutions around this. So... There's a real challenge at the moment to say we're working on these issues, but they're getting worse. So what are we doing about it? So there's that piece. And then the investor piece, it's pretty similar to the not-for-profit or foundations where they've been investing. Obviously, there's traditional investments. So just ignore that for a second. But impact investors are trying to invest in, again, ESG, so environmental, social, good causes that have a good return. They're, again, doing it one-on-one. So they're trying to solve climate change or trying to accelerate solutions in safety or mental health or in disability but again they're finding that the issue is increasing the solutions and investments maybe we may work one-on-one but the gaps widening between the problem and the solutions that are increasing so again how can you take a systemic approach to it and map out what are the combination of things that need to go together again in order to invest so so the zooming out level it's like how can we evolve what we're doing to look at what does the system need and where can we invest how do we bring kind of our activities to it and then from a business model perspective for corporates in the private sector, how can you really bring ESG purpose and impact to the core of your business and build products and services around it that generate sustainable profits but are actively solving these issues? And they're the things we love working on and they're the hard things to work on. I was going to say (laughs) that must be so hard because at the beginning you spoke, I was glad to hear that you are working with governments because often we think with social issues, we need an Elon Musk or someone like that who's just going to do it rather than wait for governments to do it. And one of the core things of why Gary and I even started this podcast was we felt like from a mental health perspective, the lack of framework from you as an individual having uh, some kind of issue or condition and seeking help and where do you go, that roadmap is not really painted in a clear picture. And it's not really a clear picture either. We know it's quite complex, but it's difficult to try and even know what to do there. And we've used the analogy of you break your arm, you know exactly what to do, but for mental health, you don't really need to know what to do. And then conversely with all that, we've spoken to multiple mental health charities already. Like I even myself have been involved in a, a black tie gala ball. This podcast itself, I did a run grateful marathon two, two or three weeks ago. As you, you're right, there's so many things out there and everything you go to, they always say the same thing. There's not enough of this being done. But then it must be very hard when you think about all the charities that are out there that are all doing good. And Batir, which is one that we've worked with, mm. helped the youth. They weren't getting funding from government. And, and even ourselves, we're like, God, that's terrible that they're not getting that. But then I suppose from a government's perspective, if you've got all these different charities all trying to work on mental health in their own different way, it, it must be hard. There's only so much that can go around to go, how much should we give to this versus this? And even in the mental health space, you've got the Black Dog Institute, you've got Beyond Blue, you've got Lifeline. There's so many of these. How do you solve that problem? To cent- Is centralization the way to do that? Is keeping it, is it more about finding what those issues are and trying to have a block in there that solves them? Where's your current headspace and all of that? Yeah, it's extremely challenging because I think you rightly point out there is actually a lot of activity happening in many different spaces. I think if we can just zone in on the mental health space, and we have done a lot of work in this in, in the past, so helping build 
a new mental health services recently, um, particularly in the disability space. We've done a lot of measurement in the past um, for um, mental health services um, and also looking into corporates around kind of the mental health issue that's currently existing. And the challenge that we see is, again, a lot of this work, which you're talking about, there is a lot of activity happening. And you could argue, actually, there's quite a lot of capital out there. Maybe there needs to be more capital allocated to mental health, but there is money going to places that are helping people. But if you look at a lot of that activity, there's two things happening, or three things happening. One is, and we might get to this later in the podcast, there's a lack of measurement. So we actually know that, say, something's going to somewhere to one of these service providers. Is it actually helping that individual they're servicing become healthier? And a lot of that data doesn't exist. So we don't know if that money is going to places that are effective. So it needs there needs to be more transparency, more measurement, and more accountability in that space where the capital's going. So that's the first thing. The second thing is with mental health, it's such a challenging space. It's like this kind of like oil that runs through all of society or this sort of thing that permeates it because it's both a cause of many issues but also a symptom of many issues. So if you look at gambling, for example, gambling, mental health, well, lack of mental health can lead to increasing addiction, but addiction also leads to increasing mental health, which can then lead to domestic violence. And then the experience of domestic violence, which is horrible, then can lead to increased mental health issues. So there's like this sort of cause and effect thing that keeps happening. And so the second thing that's happening in the mental health that we see is that most of those solutions, and maybe probably not the ones with the black tie event or the kind of the piece we raising awareness and advocacy and bringing money to it. But most of those services are dealing with the person experiencing that issue and the symptom of that. So the extreme end of mental health or someone who's experiencing that place. And it absolutely needs to happen, right? But the money is going to the, the symptoms of mental health and trying to manage and maintain those components of it because that's affecting society in such a big way. But where the money needs to shift is actually into the prevention services. And if you can start to get to prevention services and We've done some work with the Thompson Institute who do some amazing mental health prevention services up on the Sunshine Coast. The Centre for Women, which is a Brisbane-based organisation who do some extraordinary work with women and, and men, and the Women's Centre who works up, I think it's in Townsville. But a lot of their work starts to look at the prevention space and how to create, see the early signs of mental health and looking at how to manage and maintain that to get that back into a thriving state. So that needs to happen more. And then the third piece, which is alluded to my early bit around symptoms is how do you get the coordination of these activities working together better so that you can get a sequence happening because a mental health solution needs coordination and integration so for example with the women's center they're doing work around sexual violence but they have a holistic response and they have this response from health providers carers um counselors and they all go to support this individual and so a lot of these services actually need to be connected in order to make the biggest difference happen so with that element it's all about mapping the system and saying how can we best prevent these issues happening or support those who are experiencing early signs of mental health but secondly when we're when the serious sort of mental health issues arise and they surface and someone's seeking help how can we produce an integrated response to supporting that individual as opposed to a one-on-one solution which gets them back in to a cycle and mm-hmm. so there's a lot happening but i think there's a, an optimization of that transparency coming in that and a bit of a step back to say hang on we need to really look at the root causes of what's going on and deal with those as opposed to the symptoms or the outcomes that are coming from these issues yeah that's just to take a step back there tim from everything you've explained is the word purpose itself, and I know obviously your whole business isn't based on mental health, but I think there's a, a real clear alignment with the word purpose and mental health, mainly because I think a lot of mental health issues can stem from people feeling like they don't have a purpose or feeling like they don't have clarity on what it is they're trying to do. And even maybe the pressure of people telling them they need to have a why or a purpose and they don't know how to find that. From your side of things, can you speak to that? How I would see it if I was an employee in one of these corporate businesses you're working from, and you manage to create a purpose with whoever runs a company, being an employee in that environment would be much more rewarding, be much better to wake up in the morning, know I'm part of a business with a a much bigger vision. Is that something that you see as a a sort of trend amongst the companies you work with, the employee happiness goes up? 
Yeah, it's a really interesting issue. I was at a recent conference called the Purpose Conference in Sydney and I spoke at it, I think it was about six weeks ago. And Unyoked was speaking at that conference. And I think you guys are aware of Unyoked, but they talk about the kind of disconnection from people, nature and their solutions are all about getting people disconnected from social media, but going back out into nature and reconnecting and the, the benefits of that. They asked people to put their hand up and said, who's burnt out, who's feeling exhausted? And I think I'd say 99 out of 100 people said that in, in that audience. And then reconnecting with a lot of people that I've had long-term relationships with over five, six, seven years, they were saying at this point in time, the exhaustion is is something different and it's something deeper and, and, and harder. And a lot of people going through sort of career transitions and looking at what what next for themselves. And I kind of put a post up on LinkedIn and someone put a, a link to an article that said something like 86% of employees are feeling burnt out and disconnected and, and, and unengaged. And there is this whole kind of movement, which you're all aware of about like this sort of, this sort of the passive employee who's, he's not, who's not quitting, but the quiet quitting kind of revolution mm. at the moment. Something is really sitting there where people are exhausted, not knowing where to go and they feel trapped in the in sort of work environments. And I think it's really important with purpose. So purpose as a definition for me is, I think there's three elements to purpose, but the core of it is connecting to the why. And that why is all about how you can have an impact, positive impact on something, someone, or an issue every day. And it was important kind of in my own life journey that for my business purpose, and our business purpose is all about um, creating this kind of intergenerational change around these social, environmental, and cultural issues. We want long-term change. So the generations that come next are way better off than before us. But there is a difference to the individual purpose that I have. So the individual purpose that I have is also like living life in a kind of really meaningful, intentional way that is, I also try and live towards pushing myself as much as possible to live in an intentional and connected way. But then there's also my functional business purpose, like the work that we do every day. And that work that we every day, do every day is, I think our superpower is also giving clarity in complex issues, giving clarity and pathways to people to go, ah, that's what we should be working on and giving them that kind of components to it. And so I think, I think to some degree, there's been a lot of work in purpose for organizations to kind of state what its purpose is. And it can get confused around those three things. And also purpose as a trend has gone more into branding, meaning that it seems to be another way of articulating or trying to connect and sell more stuff to consumers. But if you can get your purpose for the organisation right, meaning why are employees turning up every single day and what is your business contributing to and solving for with every action that you're doing, that's hugely powerful. And if you can recognise that against what the individual's purpose is and allowing them space to explore that but connect to the organisation's purpose, then there's some real power in it. So you do find in countless study after study, higher engagement levels, higher retention levels, higher kind of sustainable profits and higher meaning and satisfaction for those organisations that are purposeful. And we do quite a lot of work particularly when we're helping organisations become B Corp, which is certification around social and environmental performance. And we will measure the satisfaction of those employees. And you should see the results. Like you get benchmarks and stuff, but they're just off the charts every single time. Satisfaction, meaningful work, impact. And it just, it does. You've got to recognise that within a corporate or environmental environment where purpose is lived every day, there is a higher level of, emotional intelligence for those employees or those leaders. There's a different kind of vibe and working environment, which does lead to much more happiness. But mental health issues can still rise in those environments. We have been involved in some of those um, for our clients as well. But on the whole, purpose is there's a direct link to happiness and, and higher degrees of sort of mental health and, and happiness because there's people invest in them as well. Those organisations invest in it. They don't ignore it as a kind of a as an issue. Outside of uh, the companies that you've worked with, just to avoid uh, being biased, is there any companies you look at from outset and think they do it very well? I think one of the things that we find, just before I answer that question, is there's a difference between purpose and managing the mental well-being of your employees. Usually Mm. those who have a great purpose do that. And what we find on the whole with organisations is they don't 
treat mental well-being and the measurement of mental well-being as a priority. And like safety, physical safety, that's become a kind of a metric, a measurement. It's ingrained in most cultures, particularly obviously those in the kind of more blue-collar sectors. That's a thing that's drilled into governance, drilled into kind of managers, drilled into employees. And there's been extraordinary progress on safety within the work environment. And I think that physical safety needs to be replicated in this kind of the mental safety or mental thriving and mental well-being space. And I think the similar measurement programs and deliberateness needs to be brought into that. I know that one of the organisations that I've worked with previously, there's a one of their clients, they do the measurement around that and building that into direct programs. And I think that's a government organisation that I won't mention their name, but I think they're doing, they think they're doing extraordinary good work in that space. I think on the whole, corporates are trying in that space, but it's just starting out. Like it's just a little bit of, they're still doing the kind of like the lunchtime yogas and the kind of put the pizza on. I think the organisations that do it well, and Belroy did this and used to do this. I don't know if they still do because I haven't been connected to Belroy for some time, but I think Belroy, the bag company, and I was just looking at my bag now, but Belroy used to do some extraordinary work in this space. But I think there's obviously the kind of like managing of mental wellbeing, the measurement of it, and then if there's any sort of support that organisation, there's a whole kind of like piece of work around that. But I think the organisations that do it really well, are looking at it not just, they're looking at the environments they create. They're looking at the ways that they put team members together. They're looking at how they, the whole work from home issue is a big issue at the moment, but they're like, they're almost like flipping the model from like the worker, the employment model, directing how employees should work to it actually starting from the employee and then building their ideal work environment around it. So I think those that are doing it well are curating teams in a really diverse way, but allowing the space for that individual to both be themselves with that individual purpose and connecting that to their own corporate purpose. And they're almost creating this sort of environment where these teams can come together and work in really meaningful ways and getting high performance results. But they're curating those teams with the right personalities and space and ways of working based on the individuals in in that environment. So I know, for example, with Bellroy, they would actually look at their teams, profile them in a whole range of different ways. And if they're going to employ someone, they wouldn't, they'd look for something quite like that would complement that that team in a really effective way. So I think those that are doing it well are looking at that more emotional leadership type and how to infuse that into their environments and then allowing that thriving to come through both in ways of working, space. And when you know, people talk a lot about psychological safety, but Issues arise for many employees. They might have the most thriving, mentally healthy individual, but something might happen in their life. Someone might pass away in their families and might have an unexpected situation. They might start to suffer from a mental illness for a range of different reasons that come into their life. But it's how that work environment won't necessarily sort of take responsibility for that because those things can happen inside and outside of work. But how do they create the environment which supports that? And in the work that we did, and I recently reconnected to someone that worked in that kind of Suncorp team that we were in, I think it actually did a really good job in that environment because it did a lot of the things I was speaking about. It's one of the individuals went through significant, a couple of them went through significant life changes and like big challenges with their family and individual challenges. But when they kind of recount sort of four or five, six years later, what experience that they went through and the support that they had within that environment both space but also psychological support to go through those life challenges was really critical. So I think there's programs, measurement, processes that need to be put in place, but I think it's the curating of those teams which can feel more human you know, and have a different dynamic than most corporate environments that you walk, work into where you're at a desk and smashing the workout. And is there... Yeah is like how practically what does that look like let's say somebody has lost some somebody for example and the corporation or business might already have a policy in place for bereavement leave or things like that is it as straightforward as trying to put policies in place or is it more about a scenario that comes around that the business is able to just take a look at it adapt to it and maybe create a new policy or just act in that moment is it as dynamic as that or is prevention better there because i was also thinking there was a lot to unpack there from what you were saying but 
not only are you trying to, as you were saying, solve the environment that people are working in, but nowadays with connectivity, things can happen outside of the workplace from home. We have news. We've got so much information coming to us all the time. It feels like more people are empathetic than they have ever have been before, contrasting to 50 years ago when you didn't know what was happening overseas. But now we do. Is it even more challenging now to try and solve some of those issues that people are facing, even though it's way beyond your control or business's control? Yeah, it's such a great question because it's a bit of yes and a bit of no. Because I think a lot of people say, is the world less mentally healthy now? And I think there's a study that I was looking up for in Australia and it was about child well-being. It rated both pet, like the general society and children's well-being. But Australia ranked 32 of 38 nations. So we're one of the poorest mentally healthy and developed countries. And children were actually worse of 35 of 38. And there's wow. one of the highest youth suicide rates in Australia. So that's pretty scary. And this is just framing where I'll go to with this conversation. But I think it's both that people are more aware of their mental health than they were in the past. And I also think that there may be some other factors contributing to that mental health. One is obviously technology and the connectedness that we have digitally. And I found it really fascinating the other day. I was watching and it just stays with me. I think about this every second day and there's just someone just talking about your phone. So if you go to a coffee shop now and you go stand in line and you get a little bit of a line, you don't just sit there, look around, maybe have a chat. Some people do on, on the whole. If you looked at the kind of the line, most people would not be looking around, having a bit of a break, having a bit of a chat, looking at what's going on. They'd be on their phone, checking their emails, checking their LinkedIn. Maybe there's a work email coming through. And there's these little moments that are really important for your brain for processing. So there might be an issue, personal issue, family issue, business thing, and you, you're processing that in a passive way. And because we're so connected and so on with our um, technology, we don't have the ability to process that information. And so that's really affecting, affecting the, how our brain's wired. And obviously we have a whole range of sensory things happening with technology that make it, we're processing stuff at higher speeds than we ever have before. And I think that's contributing to it. The second thing that's contributing to it, and I think COVID was a huge challenge for this, but I think it's also the way that our societies are structured is the opposite of that, which is social disconnection, the physical social disconnection. And I think a lot of the social issues and mental health issues will all come back to connectedness, connectedness of us to and family units, obviously breaking down quite a lot but it's really around the social connectedness in the schools and the work environments and also within the social environments. And there's a lot of less of that since COVID. And I think a lot of children in particular suffered from it, but I think a lot of workers have too. And a lot of workers are still working kind of offline. So there is some great social benefits, family benefits to that, but it's almost like a, a bit of a coping mechanism that I need to go and I need to be at home. I need to probably do my yoga. I need to do this. And that's a lot of like keeping them some degree in a healthy state as opposed to to stepping into that deep social connection. And a lot of our societies moved away from it. And I think there's also a bit of a trend, if you step back 100, 100, maybe 50, maybe the generation before and generation prior, there's a human development curve called the integral theory. And if you look at it, it's all about how your kind of perspectives widen as you go up and you become, there's no right or wrong with it. But a lot of society was more stuck in kind of that survival or kind of the rule state. So a lot of the mental health issues didn't always necessarily rise because they're kind of like in this kind of, they're not thinking as broadly as most of us do now. And I think as you get think broadly, more things start to affect you. You become more emotionally aware. And I think that can be challenging for a lot of society because you're heading in that direction. But if I can get back to the issue that we're talking about, so what can corporates actually do? So in those sort of scenarios, I was talking about these kind of like emotionally healthy teams that can enable these sort of, individuals have these moments and have flex i think it's partly policy so making sure it's not as rigid as saying well, actually that person can only have three personal league days and there's only two hours of support with mental health that they can do through the eap which is the employee assistance program each employee probably will need something different depending on their circumstances so it's empowering that leader who is responsible for making that decisions to make the right decisions for that individual hang on you need to go off and have five days free. Oh, hang on. You need we need some, some direct some investment here, support this person in their life around maybe some counseling or support. So there's that kind of immediate 
functional, practical decision-making that leader needs in order to support that person. Then there's the development of the leader. So a lot of leaders, if you look in sort of corporate environments, will tend to hire people that don't threaten them in terms of the work. They'll hire safe people that are a bit like them, that they know that they can work with and they create, create this happy functional piece. And so when an issue arises around mental health, that's a really challenging thing to talk to someone about. No doubt about it. If a employee comes to you and they've had a huge family situation, maybe even they've admitted that they've had some suicidality kind of thinking and thoughts, like that's a really challenging thing to do. With the Thompson Institute, for example, they have training for for those leaders to be able to deal with those challenging conversations. I think that's really critical um, to be able to do that. And then the third piece is setting up the structures of your team. So getting away from like this, like, I think like the industrial kind of way of working where you're churning out widgets, even in services environments, you can have that kind of feel to them and the hourly rates and charge in seven-minute intervals, intervals and things like that. There needs to be space within that work environment, which will enable productivity probably higher, but it enables not just the kind of one-to-one leader, but there's the, the kind of peer-to-peer piece. So, you know, there is environments where people can, when you're talking about strategy or work, there's time to actually... You know, allow space for those more personal conversations to arise. It's okay to cry within a work environment. It's okay to surface a, a really challenging issue. It's okay to talk about something that you're willing to talk about in that environment. So that creates that uh, ability for the team to support each other, knowing that someone might be quite vulnerable because of a mental health or personal issue. You can account for that in the work that you're doing. And that allows that person to heal and, and transform and change in, in a better way. So I think there's ways of working that need to be introduced to be able to create that psychological space for these conversations to be had and also enable that support that a lot of people can provide to those individuals and, and, and allowing that to be a an okay thing within the work environment. Yeah, I think that's encouraging to hear what you said in terms of maybe rather than like when you think of it from a macro point of view, you think, God, there's so many business, so many people, how are we going to make change? But yeah, focusing on leaders, which is a much smaller number, even down to a, an actual company itself, again, is a smaller number. And then that ripple effect, is that how you see it? Like that ripple effect will spread to all levels of the business. I've even felt this myself in a previous corporate job where because I was open about my own mental health story, I think I had three or four different individuals come to me privately during my tenure there and essentially break down and tell me their whole life story and nobody else in their life or work or personal situation knew about that, which in one way was in, was great in terms of they were finally telling someone about it, but also it was very harrowing and scary because I was thinking, gosh, I'm essentially a stranger to them. And maybe there is comfort in telling somebody you don't know, but no one in their family knows about any of these issues. And that was a bit frightening for me. I was like, gosh, like that's, and then also for me, you struggle down with that whole thing of as much as you want to give back and support them. If you keep doing that, and I came across this a couple of scenarios where there's that line of you maybe help out too much. And then all of a sudden there's a, a codependency there. And then it's very hard to pull back from that as well. Do you see that? Is there something there that you like? <laughs> such, to... a, such a great point. I think particularly men in particular are, can hold on to these issues for a long time and it can really drain men over a big period. So typically don't tell anybody. And when they finally do, it's a very outpouring of emotion. And I think as a business leader with that environment, and in, as a human, you tend to want to help that individual, but there is a line between what you can do to help and also how that individual may need support from outside the work environment. So there is a line to make sure you draw because you can get pulled into that um, very tender state and that can be unhelpful for the person you're trying to help because you're not trained in that. And secondly, it can be extraordinarily emotionally draining for the leader who's involved in that situation as well. And so I think within the work environment, that's why you need to have the leader trained and able to have these sort of safe, important conversations, but then be able to direct them to where they need to get help and support because it can't be rested back on that leader. Hmm. I think that can also help happen a lot in the school environment with teachers in particular as well. 
And I think a really good model is the trademark guys with this is a conversation starter. They make the tradie t-shirts that are quite vibrant. And they did that because they've experienced suicide and deaths on the work site, which is a horrible experience and very common, unfortunately, in the trade industry. But to have the kind of ability to train those people, leaders, in those conversations, but have workers wear those pieces just to start a conversation. Then they have a place to direct them. They have the call center with this conversation. So say, okay, call this number. If you need help, I can a call, have a chat to you. But if you really need help, I can't. There's only there's a mm. line which I can get you to. You need to go and talk to a professional and that person can deal with you and help you directly. And I'll, I'll support you through that process, but you do need to go and seek help. So when we did me- when we do measurement in this space for the leaders, one of the key metrics is, A, the ability and confidence to have that conversation because that's tra- challenging. And secondly, the ability to then enable that person to go and seek help. So they're not seeking help from you as a person, as a leader, because you're not trained in that. You're there to be able to have that conversation. It's about then the ability to get them to seek the right help and go on that journey of whatever journey they need to go on. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly the the way we think about that. Even at Nimbus, we think whilst we offer one element of, let's say, health and well-being, we're not the answer. And hopefully by just engaging with us in some shape or form in a safe environment, the guardrails come down and then through our networking community, we can point someone in the direction to go and seek more qualified health advice from whether it's a Cairo or anything like that. I was just thinking it was similar in how we see things that it's that ripple effect that maybe we're the first step on the ladder for people to explore their own well-being, but we're not trying to be the answer. The answers are all out there, but we can at least steer people in the right way. But you mentioned measurement a few times there. We've always found it quite hard to find measurement outside of suicide rates, which seems to be quite ubiquitous with people no matter what country. And I'm from Ireland. I know the figures in Ireland. I know where it sits in, in terms of the European ladder. And it's, I think it's second or third in, in, over there. I mean, we know Australia is very high as well. Outside of that, what kind of measurement is going on right now in this space? Yeah, there isn't a lot, unfortunately. And I think that is the case generally for impact in general, any kind of social issue, there's not a lot of measurement going on. And that's a real challenge because there's now an expectation from funders, even kind of anyone, any stakeholders interacting with them, that there is measurement accountability for this. What we found kind of over the journey of the work that I've done in the past and currently do is in mental health, there's actually extraordinary frameworks around this. So there's a lot of academics who have worked in this space, built great frameworks around personal well-being, resilience. There's a whole range of elements that on a clinical level or in a more broad level, there is actually assessments that are used within each of kind of the different practices and different services that are offered. And what it is about is leveraging those and building those into the experiences, like the ones we're talking about, where there is people getting supported by mental health and enabling that measurement to happen as pre, during and post those experiences to measure the impact of it. And the challenging part of that is building that into the culture of the service provider or the organisation doing it. Not necessarily that they're not wanting to do it, it's just putting it into the systems that they, you know, the customer experience of it or the client experience or whatever the experience it is. So it is 100% possible to do the measurement of it and it's hugely beneficial to build into the organisation and those that do are actually experiencing a wide range of benefits. It's a better clinical experience or, or experience that they're developing because they're more aware of the impact of their services they're having attracting more capital, attracting more interest in those services that they've got, and they're improving their services and products and services that they're offering. So there's not a lot globally, but it's so possible to do this at scale because unlike some other spaces that we're talking about, mental health has a great evidence base and great frameworks for measurement. It's just about operationalising them to make it possible. But we do find that we've actually presented to federal governments around some of the work we've done in the past where we've done the measurement um, and they say this is some of the best work we've ever seen. We've never seen this accountability before. And they're saying, I wish the whole sector had this. It's what's actually possible to do. It's just about finding the right people to support you and making that journey and making it possible happen. So as a, any obviously the federal government, as you said, liked it. You'd like to think they've got the resources and the network to make it happen. What would be preventing them from making it happen? Yeah, there's one of the, the one of the challenges of the impact measurement space is 
the fund the funder could be a government could be a foundation could be a corporate who invests in it isn't creating additional investment to make sure the measurement is incorporated into it so that then goes to the service provider and they're like they've got x amount of money to deliver y service and they've got this little bit of fat on the end or maybe five percent ten percent and they're like i can't afford the measurement component of it so unless you get a service provider who have good scale and have managed their business really well where they can allocate that funding and, and do that, it tends to need to be driven by the funder. And they find that also challenging for themselves to create the space for it. So there's a bit where they say, how can I afford to add on the impact measurement piece? And that's what's, I think that's one of the reasons driving the lack of measurement. And the second one is also some providers thinking, maybe I don't want to measure this. Maybe do I we want to keep our funding maybe do we is it really working do i really want to know the answers and that's i'm trying to say that in a kind way but it also that transparency and accountability can be a bit frightening to know that yeah yeah yeah, what what i'm doing is not working and you want to my view is if it's not working you're better off measuring and changing it because we've seen where we've done measurement in the past something didn't work and they shifted and changed it and then it became wildly successful that's an amazing outcome as opposed to continue to do something that might be actually harming the person you're trying to fix so there's two dynamics happening there. So there's some new models emerging to get that funding allocation happening with the governments and foundations to, in order to build that into the funding arrangement, which I'm really excited by and seeing now. And the second one is I think those leading in that space and some of the clients we've worked with demonstrating that this is possible and having live examples of this and people going, oh, I need one of those. I want one of those. I have to have one of those. And potentially I'd, I'd imagine some regulation or contractual expectations happening at some stage in the near future that says you have to do this and you have to do it in this way. It's positive. It does sound positive, at least, that conversations are... I wouldn't be aware that the federal government would even get a chance to see a presentation from someone like yourself. So it's good to know that these conversations are happening and there is potential. And as you said, it's very doable, which, again, is very positive. So it's good to hear. Yeah, I think it's good to hear. I think... And I think there's the mental health, the, the wellbeing framework that's come out that was driven by some government funding recently. I know that a lot of the state government treasuries are starting to think about impact measurement embedded into the funding so they have greater transparency and accountability. A lot of these things are in the plans of governments, funders and service providers. They're sitting there in a strategic plan. They're all in the top five things. We need to do measurements all there. And unfortunately, what we've seen is some, there's some great people doing measurement, but we've seen them try it and it hasn't worked. That's part of the challenge but also secondly they haven't got to it yet they're like oh, i need to do it i need to get to it. i need to get to it i need to get to it and so i think it's coming in a, in a fairly big wave at the moment which is exciting and um and, and it's going to be really important to do it well to support that organization the funders and the integrity of the industry and i think at a kind of systems level that's going to be a really great outcome because we'll know what's working and not working and where we should direct more energy and funding to and get back to that issue where there's a lot of stuff happening but let's work out where the funding needs to really go to make the biggest impact possible. It almost feels like can there even just be a a fairly government-led survey that businesses need to administer to their employees that's free and whatever the results may come out the other end, if if you're in a certain bracket, that then there's a framework of, okay, if your employee satisfaction is below 10% or whatever, it's obviously drastic get in touch with your local government rep or do you have budget to resolve this no okay we'll seek help from here um yeah maybe- i think it should be it's being mandated now that corporates have to do their environmental measurement and their greenhouse gas emissions account for it i think safety is embedded in a kind of governance space i think mental health has got to be there you've got modern slavery that's hard right. to measure but it's at least in people's governance statements and in their plans mental health's got to be the next one because it's yeah. Yeah, and and I think it's just, as I said, the solutions are there, the, mm. the the frameworks are there to measure it, the benchmarks are there, and I think if you then connect in, you know, if there was a free tool, it's here's how to measure it internally, and then you can get a diagnosis, great, and then you might get put into a bracket to say, look, twenty percent of your employees are actually vulnerable. Here's some actions you could take. Here's how you can engage your EAP program because all of them have it. And here's potentially some other support that you need from these service providers. That to me would be a huge outcome for, mm-hmm. the, for those organizations. And I'm advocating at the moment for a number of organizations we work with who do their environmental engagement, so their employee engagement surveys, their pulse surveys, put the mental health stuff on it. 
measure mm-hmm. it. You're going to need a program in place for it, but put these questions into it because you're going to need, you need to do it because it's so important for your business because if it's so important for your employees. Engagement is great, but if you knew if they're thriving you know, mentally, physically, relationship-wise, that's fundamental to the success of your business. Yeah, I wonder, I presume there's nothing on the census, is there? But even something as simple as that, there's one or two questions on there, like that would be even quite good for a government to know. And we always say about mental health anyway, that the bad news is there is no silver bullet to fix whatever is going on. It's not necessarily about fixing either, but the good news is that there are so many things from charities to apps to exercises. There is a lot, which is encouraging. And yeah, this is where it goes back to that original thing about the framework that we've always taught since day one is if there just was that framework where you know okay if you're in this percentage or if you're feeling this way here's something you can do and then you move on to the next thing and and we were lucky actually through gary's sister back in scotland we did a kind of a bespoke podcast for their staff around mental health month where we did a bit of a questionnaire and they sent in things that they were facing challenges which we then took a look at and tried to give examples that we've learned over the, the show to say, look, here's some resources that we've come across. And that was really amazing to see as well at a ground level that the, like there are businesses out there that really do care about this. And they're not mutually exclusive, right? It was fun researching you because Adfel Aziz came up and I worked with him before and his whole thing was good as the new cool. And there is a lot of good stuff going out on out there, but let's say just to take Australia, what percentage of businesses do you think are doing something about this? Is the number quite small? It sounds like it's growing, but what's the current state of play there? Yeah. I think it's interesting because I did have done a fair bit of work with Aftel in the US. And I think the US is obviously they've got a very different context around their health sort of situation in the US, which is very dire. But from a mental health perspective, how serious some of those big organisations are taking it is, is very encouraging. There's a long way to go, but it feels like it's very core to their offering and, and what's emerged, particularly over now post-COVID, which is good. I think in Australia, we're behind the US. I think I would believe that most big corporates are aware of this as an issue they are putting in place people in their people and culture teams where they're heading up well-being and taking that seriously from that perspective but i think largely it's stopping at initiatives that are well intended but are only sort of papering over the cracks of what's actually going on and i think some of the things we talked about earlier around measuring the impact um, the well-being of, of the staff putting in place leadership training um putting in place additional support services beyond EAP, putting in place and considering the ways of working to make sure that these areas around the psychological safety and this, this, this ability to deal with and, and enable people to experience mental health within the workplace and knowing that's okay, that, that's lacking completely. I would say that you'd be lucky to have 5% of corporates doing a good job in the space. I think a large percentage are starting to, to know this is important and well-intended, but I'd say we're severely lacking across the, the corporate sector at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some pockets of good work happening. Um, I think there's some great programs emerging in the preventive health space. I think it's, as I said, it's on people's agendas, both corporates from a risk perspective and people culture risk perspective and on funders, governments, this is a huge issue. But I think that it's stopping short at the easy things to do that make you go, okay, not really understanding the root cause and really looking at how you can create these interventions and work environments that can enable people to experience mental health and thrive over time. That's largely a, back to the sort of start of the conversations, largely that it's still being seen as something to deal with when it emerges as an outcome or a symptom, as opposed to something that can be enabled and managed, particularly when there's some, some, some early signs of it happening um, around the prevention space. Yeah, and it must be tricky to police that because even as recently as maybe three years ago, I was working in advertising and whilst with a global company, whilst it was great in terms of there was a lot of those things you mentioned, policies and things were all in place. The hierarchy for that particular office in this geolocation had no leader, no HR, and it was the Wild Wild West. So what, whilst they were doing all those good things from a 
strategy and policy point of view, the reality of being in the actual office, that wasn't actually, they were happening, but there was other factors going on at the same time, mm. which, which made it, which is tricky as well. So I was thinking, who polices all that? Who's sitting above those corporates to go, you don't have a HR structure in place. I'm not saying what you're saying, you can't trade anymore. Like, where is that? I'm thinking back to my Special Olympics days, we used to go into the community clubs and make sure that they had a chairperson, a secretary, a qualified coach, a first day trained person. Is the government looking at things like that from a corporation, particularly over, let's say, a, a certain company size, that you have to have these pillars in place? I, th- I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's a really great point. If you think about the economic cost of society of mental health, it would be extraordinary. And it would be also to the productivity of the corporates that we're talking about. And that's not a great measure, right? Like you don't want to put, um, talk about mental health as a kind of an economic challenge, but it, the cost of society is significant. At some point, the government is going to have government will be saying, we can't deal with kind of like the influx of knock-on effects of a mental health support services. I think I last heard someone was trying to get um, support with a counsellor for six months, like an issue, mental health issue coming up right now. They couldn't get in to see a trained psychologist in six months. That issue is going to compound and higher and challenging. Then you think about the knock-on effects that can happen with gambling and domestic violence and all those things that kind of, and then you talk about, you know, a lot of the issues that go into with the police, the ambulance and into hospitals are directly related to mental health. And you think about the kind of a knock-on effect that that continues, that cycle continues to perpetuate in society. It's a significant, massive issue for the society to talk about. If you talk about the two biggest issues facing society, this inequity that sort of sits across everything, climate, mental health, they're like the two things that we're going to like, are going to like seriously impacting every household, businesses and society. So the cost of governments is going to go through the roof. So it will be inevitable that there'll be some sort of regulation that will come in like safety that says you need to make sure that you're actually managing your mental health within your governance structures at a board level, measuring it, putting programs in place, and here's the ideal structure for it, and here's how you need to be accountable for it. Like that that needs to happen and needs to come. I think in organisations that lead on that now and, and do that voluntarily will be much better off um, um, and also obviously just the right thing to do. No, normally we finish on three quick fire questions. Uh, when we started, it was supposed to be answered in 30 seconds. <laughs> Sometimes people go for five minutes. So there's no pressure. You can take as long or as little as you like. But the first one is, where do you think the world is out of 10 in, in regards to mental health awareness? I think awareness is growing. I think I think there's certain pockets like men, for example, where that needs to increase certain I think I think we probably were at a three not too long ago, and we're probably at a five or a six out of ten. So I think we're progressing really well, but I think that's also servicing mental health issues and, and the size of the issue that we've got. And a quick addendum to that: like if you were to compare that to Australia, do you think Australia is is, is better or worse than that? I think awareness is probably at par. I think we're behind, and the UNICEF report shows that we're behind some of the other developing countries in in, in facilitating that mental health and, and that thriving society in mm. our communities. I, I think mean, the awareness uh, is definitely at the same level. Yeah, yeah, it was that. That was really surprising to hear that statistic from you because quite often, anything the same with wellness. If you're living in a metro area, you think, oh, everybody's thinking about this. But I often think if you were to survey the broader um, population here, it would be a lot lower and maybe it's the same with mental health because a lot of the people that we've spoken to from an Australia point of view, it feels like everyone is aware of it now. But as you say, we have s- spoken to people where that's not the case, especially in rural areas or farmers. And I know you do a lot of work with yeah. farmers as well. And it's a big issue with farmers, the isolation piece that you mentioned. So yeah, it's quite easy sometimes to think you're in your little bubble and everybody thinks or knows the level that we know but it's actually quite wider than that where are you though in in terms of one out of ten in regards to your own mental health right now i think seven and a half and eight i think it's been a interesting life period a transition over the last six months and there's been some moments where our life has been very full and very stretched, but I'm very blessed. I've got amazing two little babies, a great wife. I love the work that I do. I'm generally a positive person and I've been able to have that development around my self-awareness and 
I feel like, yeah, um, yeah, I'm in a in a good place. That's great. Good when we were reading up on you, I was like, God, it sounds like such an interesting job working with all these cool companies trying to make change. Like, it, it does sound like you're really doing some great work. So credit to you. The one thing that I know with three questions, the one thing that is interesting with the work that we do is that you do get exposed to some of these deep, challenging social issues. And because you get more exposed to them, environment, social, cultural issues, it can get you down. There's a the kind of mm-hmm. movement around what we're talking about, like climate, like anxiety, social issue anxiety. There's so in this work, because you're exposed to it, you can see the issues and see how big um, the problem is and how that's sort of getting out of control and the frustration that comes with it. So it can get you down at the same time. But because we get to work with some amazing organization, it gives you hope around the solutions coming. So it is a, it does play with your mind that this yeah. space that you work in because you can come out of some of these interactions and feel really shaken and affected by it. Yeah, it reminds you of the, if you were a psychologist, one of my friends is a psychologist and, and, and she's even said like re- relatively new to the space and it, it, it is a lot like she'll probably take years to learn with how do you control the baggage that you hear and, and speak to every single day? How do you, you know draw a line in the sand to say, okay, I need to just go on with my own life now, which is quite challenging. And that's something that we've come across the show quite a bit is it does feel disheartening sometimes. Even when you wake up, you see things on the news or you feel the environment, no one's really taking action with climate change. You think, what can I do? But then I can't remember who it was that I think we referenced Gary a few episodes ago where you just have to think about your own. You've alluded to it at the beginning. You just have to live your own life as best as you can. And that's all you can do, really. And if you're lucky to work in a space where you can actually drive impact, even better. But yeah, that is the kind of the, the simple answer to that is if you are feeling down or it's too much it's just all you can do is your best in your little your lane way and if everybody can think like that you can actually drive a lot of change and then the last question though is if you could recommend just one thing that people could do each day to improve their own mental health what would that be yeah there might be two in this but one of the things that my wife said to me is when you have children and there's a lot, life becomes very full. It's like you almost need to see the acceptance of where you are in life. If you get surfed every day or you get to do yoga every day and eat extremely healthy and sleep well, well, that's the reality of your life right now. That's not <laughs> going to happen. So it's acceptance and it's presence and the gratitude for what you've got. And I think that can go a long way around it. And when life is tough, some of that recognizing that is part of living, you're not beautifully happy and chilled and cruisy every single moment like that is a part of life so i think it's just acknowledging that life has those moments in it they're tough they're challenging they're joyful so it's acknowledging and acceptance and, and doing your best in the moment you've got yeah love it love it and just finally where can people get in touch but i was also thinking about accessibility purpose made is your own organization and i'll play devil advocate let's say I'm out there and I'm going, yeah, that sounds great. I'd love my company to invest in this. Is it difficult to work with? What are the challenges? Obviously, people think about budget, time, energy. You know, maybe I don't have the budget for this. How do people work with Purpose Made? And are you able to work with all levels of business? Yeah, yes, definitely. So yeah, there is all those factors and considerations that always emerge, particularly I think a lot of clients at the moment is you know, leading to Christmas where you have those considerations about time, capacity and effort. But we do work with any sort of size organisation from small to very large. And we tend to work more a little bit at the moment from mid to, to large organisations. But we can work from anywhere from a day, which is a relatively affordable, to two years projects. So we, we're very flexible in working with organisations that have really want to do this work and the other thing that we'd say is that with budget time effort yes you'll need to pay for it yes there'll need to be time spent by you or your team doing it and yes there'll be effort needed but what we do find is because our superpower is about clarity and helping you move forward coming off the back of it that money will be hugely well spent it you'll have clarity will have greater impact and now we, we measure our own results and we have the evidence from that and it'll be worth it so if you've got something grumbling in you that says i really need to do this work i need to prioritize it i would say step into it because we'll help you through it we'd love to help you through it and it'll be hugely valuable for you afterwards because we're here to support and how do people get in touch so it's yeah, two ways i mean you can go to the website www.purposemade.io and you could email at hello at purposemade.io 
and yeah, we'll be in touch. So that's probably the two ways. You can always check me out on LinkedIn as well. So yeah, Timothy O'Brien at Purpose Made. That's sort of an, an easy way to get in touch with me personally as well. There's lots of good articles as well online. There's a Forbes article and lots of other bits to to delve further into the, I suppose, the ethos of what you guys do, which is what I found very fascinating and again also encouraging to see so many businesses are doing that, which is great. And also, <laughs> it's probably triggered me. I'll probably touch base with you from a professional point of view, maybe in the new year about trying to look back at, into this as well. As we try and do it as as much as we can ourselves, but it is challenging when you're trying to just make a, a business survive to pause and reflect and are we on the right path which sometimes you can go a little bit off to the side so yeah i, I totally recommend anyone who's listened to try and at least look into a little bit more and hopefully it can benefit your company but yeah this is a really fascinating one tim because gary and i were we haven't looked into the measurement side of it before and that that impact side of it and it was encouraging sometimes you can think in the negative when you talk about mental health or oh, dire there's not enough money government blah 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 so for me anyway it's been very encouraging to see the work that you're doing that's out there that we don't always see um and yeah credit to you and keep up that good work yeah i appreciate yeah, it thanks a lot mate keep it up shift up thanks a lot yeah cheers yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks, all right thanks, we'll thanks, see you Tim. bye mate bye bye